We continue to make our way through the great eighth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, reading again this morning from verses 28 through 39. Let us ask the Lord whose spirit breathed out this word and preserved it for us in Holy Scripture now to breathe upon us afresh and to give us spiritual wisdom and insight, illumining our minds with his truth, and opening our hearts to his promise. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are the great God of our salvation from beginning to end. We give you thanks that you have looked upon us in grace and mercy and power in your Son, Jesus Christ, and you've given him to be for us our righteousness, our peace, and our everlasting joy. In his name we pray that you will open the windows of heaven, pour out your spirit upon us, and grant us, O Lord, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe, and souls to receive and to respond to the great promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glorious grace through him, now and forever. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, Romans 8, 28 and following. It is written. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, who was raised. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. For the past few weeks, I've been referring to the great eighth chapter of Romans as the Mount Everest of Holy Scripture. 
And working our way through Romans 8, it is as though we are ascending a huge mountain step by step in order to reach the summit and obtain a glorious view. Now today, we make it to the top in verses 31 through 39. One of the most elevated and triumphant soaring passages of the Bible. These verses are, in fact, the resounding crescendo, not only of chapter 8, but of everything that has been leading up to it from the beginning of the letter. Exulting in the unshakable assurance of the eternal security of believers in Jesus Christ, the apostle wrote, We know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew in eternity past, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Apostle Paul in those verses takes us from eternity past into eternity future and declares that our salvation in Jesus Christ is the work of God alone by His sovereign grace. And therefore it is unshakably secure. And now exulting in that unshakable assurance of eternal security, the Apostle Paul now revels in triumph as he defies all the enemies of God with a series of rhetorical questions and case-closing argumentation. What then shall we say? To these things. That is, what then shall we say in response to these things, these promises of God's Word, which we have heard throughout the letter to the Romans, such as, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And thus we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the prophetic past tense the word of God speaks it in the past tense he also glorified as though it's already an accomplished fact because in the mind of God it is already an accomplished fact 
through the work of Christ, His Son. The glorification of those who believe in Jesus Christ together with Him for all eternity. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to that rhetorical question is no one. No one can be against us. That is, no one can be against us and ultimately prevail over us. A different answer could be given, but the meaning would still be the same. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, any number of adversaries could rise against us. Yes, first of all, Satan himself is against us and all his minions in the unseen spiritual realm. And then under Satan's earthly command, it was Nero Caesar in the first century. It could be any political tyrant or anti-Christian power in the 21st century. It could be the barbarian hordes of history or the barbarians of today, such as ISIS or ISIL or the other state-sponsored terrorists who with demonic ruthlessness kill and maim the innocent and defenseless. Or the spirit of ungodliness in men and women now at work within influence in politics, education, the judiciary, Hollywood, and corporate executive offices. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, plenty of people. But ultimately, to no avail. Now remember, the man who wrote this to the Christians in Rome knew that the possibility was quite likely that he himself would be beheaded in Rome. And he was. He knew very well who could be against him and what they could do to him. But he also knew that ultimately all that they could do to him was to no avail over him. Now, brothers and sisters, we've got to get to that point of believing that, don't we? Take it home to your hearts. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 56, this I know, that God is for me, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Yes, I know what man can do to me, but that is ultimately nothing if God is for me. Let's take a closer and more careful look at this. If God is for us, what does it mean to say that God is for us? Just that he's on our side so that we can have our way when we want it? Of course not. This is not a matter of God's catering to our personal desires. This is a matter of God's being for us in Jesus Christ in order to overcome 
all opposition to our eternal salvation. And who is the us in this verse? If God is for us, this this us is not just a generic us, anybody and everybody. The us is defined by the context. Verse 28, those who love God who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. God is for us. Paul goes further to substantiate the answer to his rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this is the center point of Paul's triumphant argument in this passage. He who did not spare his own son, he's already given his only begotten son. Would he... Would he Leave anything else out that would jeopardize our salvation? He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. It has a familiar ring to it. Does that have a familiar ring to it? Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Remember that? That passage concerning Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A prophetic moment in history pointing to the death of of Jesus on the cross for us. In Genesis 22, God refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son. This refers to the fact that only through Isaac would God's covenant promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through him would be fulfilled. If Isaac were to die before producing descendants, then God's covenant promise to Abraham would die as well. And yet God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son. But Isaac was more than Abraham's only son. He was, as God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I think it is significant that the first time the word love occurs in the Bible, the first time the word love occurs in the Bible is here in Genesis 22, 2, when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and offer him. Does that seem significant to you? That the very first time the word love occurs in the Bible 
it occurs, so to speak, on the lips of God himself. Speaking about a father's love for his only son and the necessity of that father sacrificing his only son whom he loves. In that terrible testing of Abraham, God was revealing what would ultimately be necessary for his covenant promise to be fulfilled, for all the families of the earth to be blessed. It would be the sacrifice of a beloved only son. But it would not be Isaac. For just as Abraham was about to raise the knife to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord called to him and stopped him, speaking the word of the Lord, saying, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld, you have not spared your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham looked behind him and saw a ram with its horns caught in a thicket. And Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. God provided a substitutionary sacrifice so that Abraham's beloved only son Isaac would be spared. But that in itself was a prophetic event It foreshadowed, prefigured, and pointed to the fact that God himself would not spare his own beloved only son. God himself would do what he spared Abraham from doing. God himself would provide the sacrifice just as he had provided the ram for Abraham. But the sacrifice would be God's own beloved only son whom he would not spare. There could be no substitute for Jesus because Jesus himself was the one and only sacrifice whose blood could atone for sins, the sins of the world, so that the blessing of salvation would go to people of every tongue and tribe and nation. And by his blood, the new covenant was established. The forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the reason that the scripture says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, all includes the whole scope of humanity, Jew and Gentile, all who believe in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when the scripture says that he, God the Father, gave him up, which can be strictly translated, delivered him up. It is echoing the language used elsewhere in the New Testament, which refers to the death of Jesus on the cross and the events leading up 
to the crucifixion. Over and over again, we read, particularly in the Gospels, that Jesus was going to be or was delivered up or delivered over into the hands of those who were going to crucify him. And the Apostle Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, declared that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified by and killed by the hands of lawless men. This passage teaches us that Jesus was not simply, not merely the victim of evil, oh no, but that with a sovereign plan and purpose overruling all evil, God the Father delivered him up, gave him up for us all to deliver us from sin and death. And by the way, this verse which says that God gave him up is also the antidote, the answer, the remedy to the wrath of God spoken of in chapter 1. Do you remember what the apostle says over and over and over again? God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. And now we see, to save those under his wrath, us, God gave him up, his beloved only son, so that in him and through him we might be saved from the wrath to come. Therefore, the apostle asks rhetorically, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Which is to say, since God has already given us the supreme gift of his love in Christ, why would he withhold from us the good things which he has promised us through his son? The all things here refers to the promise of sharing in Christ's glory eternally. The promise that in the everlasting kingdom we will have no lack of any good thing. That our heart's most true and pure desires will be fulfilled as we share together with Christ as heirs of the eternal kingdom of God. How could that not come to pass when God has already done all that is necessary to secure it? The Apostle Paul then continues with rhetorical questions in rapid-fire fashion. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Well, the accuser, the adversary, the prosecuting attorney, Satan himself may well bring charges. But, the Scripture says, it is God who justifies And God justifies not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which is ours, received by faith in Christ. So, therefore, Paul asks, who is to condemn? Well, who is it that can condemn us? Only one who has been appointed judge of all, 
could condemn us. And that one must himself be without sin. Remember? Remember? Remember what Jesus said to the men who had caught that woman in the act of adultery? She was guilty. And he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, who was that? There was one man there who was without sin, who could have condemned her and thrown the first and the last stone. But what did he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Why didn't Jesus condemn her? Because he knew that he would be condemned for her in her place as her substitutionary sacrifice. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was condemned in our place. Who is to condemn? Only Jesus Christ is in a position to condemn us, but he was condemned for us. And so then the scripture goes on to say Christ Jesus is the one who died, meaning he died for us. Is the one who died for us going to condemn us? No. More than that, who was raised, which means that his death for us actually accomplished atonement for our sins and was accepted by the Father as the sacrifice on our behalf. Sin and death had no hold on him because he had done away with sin and death by his own death. He was raised as the victorious Savior and, says the Scripture, is at the right hand of God indeed interceding for us. The one who could condemn us is the one who died for us and was raised for us and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bidst me there depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Stand up and let's sing. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. What with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has won the victory for us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will implant this word deep in our hearts and water it and cause it to spring forth and bear much fruit for the glory of your name, through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us affirm our faith. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready 